You played on an incredible four national teams. I played on one, and the idea of doing that tryout four times makes me tired just thinking about it. What's your involvement in the Canadian national program at this stage in your life? I'm just a good spectator at this point. <laughs> uh, you know, I had my, my four years, and I think it spanned like 12 years by the time you go every fourth year. Like, I met all kinds of great guys on the U.S. team, made some good friends there, Darkey and Ingle Keys from New York and Greeby and Brooks Sweet, Petramala, can go on forever. You just meet so many good guys when you're, when you're playing, and that, that's probably what I remember the best about it. It was just, just fun. Welcome to the Fred Opie Show, where you learn how to make a difference on and off the field. I'm your host, Fred Opie, an athlete turned author, producer, professor, and editor. I use my story and the stories of others to help you figure out what your gifts are, find the right places and activities to develop them, and give you a plan to give, save, and spend your money and time wisely. A native of Victoria, British Columbia, Hall of Famer Kevin Alexander, a.k.a. Alexander the Great has been called the greatest goal scorer in Canadian lacrosse history. He played the majority of his pro indoor career with the Victoria Shamrocks of the Western Lacrosse Association. He led his club to Man Cups, which is the Canadian Indoor Championship in 1979 and 1983. In addition, he helped the Buffalo Bandits for the Major Indoor Lacrosse League win championships in 1992 and 1993. Alexander was a four-time Canadian field lacrosse selection, earning best midfielder at the 1986 World Championships. Alexander is a member of the Canadian Lacrosse Hall of Fame. We unpack his oral history and lacrosse journey today on the Fred Opie Show. What's the oldest thing you know about your family's genealogy? And let me give you some context. There is a book I read that's won an award down here in the States called, I think it's called Elijah of Buxton, which is a part of Canada where a lot of uh, former African-Americans went to Canada during 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law, and a lot of them stayed there, stayed there long after the Civil War and slavery was over in this country. And as my mother would say, you have some fly in your buttermilk. What is your family's genealogy? We've got stuff that goes back to my great-great-grandfather who was born in St. Louis in uh, 1824. They made the long trek right to Victoria in 1858 and started setting routes around here and then, so... It goes back a fair ways. As in St. Louis, Missouri, in the United States. Yeah, exactly. That's the documentation that we have, and he came up here. He had like 11 kids, and my dad's dad was one of those. So, yeah, it goes back a fair ways, actually. That is amazing that you know that much about history. How big is the community with those kind of roots where you grew up? Well, that's kind of changed now. Like, when I was a kid, there wasn't a whole lot of people, you know, that were black. If you were, you were related to the Alexanders or the Hudlins or the Mitchells. We were all related. You know, as I got older, uh, when I started 12, 13, 14, more people had, had moved here. But still, it was, you knew everybody, and everybody knew you, actually. So, yeah, it was quite a small community, really, but uh, highly respected. And, uh, yeah, it was never, never any troubles. How many relatives in your family were noted athletes? Well, my brothers played lacrosse, but really there wasn't a whole lot of, of sports in the family. I had an uncle one time. It was pretty neat. He was a world champion um, tree climber. When huh. you, you know, when you see those logging games, the guys that climb up the top of the tree, ring the bell, and come down. He was like world champ at that for like 12 years or something. But other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, sports in our family. The oldest brother, Kenny, was born in 47, 
So he's like 71-ish. Frank just uh, Frank left us about a year and a half ago, and he was a couple years younger than Kenny. Uh, so he's like 69, and I'm 63. Mm-hmm. A bit of an afterthought. Three of us, and I got a sister as well. She's a year or two older than Kenny. They both played the box across all their life and senior lacrosse for the Shamrocks and when we played up in Nanaimo. But no, there was there really wasn't a whole lot of field lacrosse around here until even like in the mid-70s they started organizing teams, and they were just mostly Eastern guys. Never really got that organized at the, at the field lacrosse level until, uh, you know, late 70s. So you started playing right out the womb. When you could walk, there were sticks around your house. Yeah, that's pretty safe to say. Always had a stick. Never played organized until I was five. That's what we did. We grabbed a stick, and you, when you went out the door, you grabbed a stick and the ball and played until you lost the ball and come back got another one. Most of us are just clueless of the system, the junior system that you all go up through to play box across at the pro level. Acclimate my audience to what you do when you love lacrosse and you're talented. Well, you know, in Victoria, lacrosse is very well organized, and it has been since I was five. You go down to the box, we call it the box, Stevenson box. You'd show up there, and there was one guy, he'd be called the grandfather of lacrosse in Victoria. His name was uh, Doug Fletcher. And he had all the sticks in the car. If you wanted to buy sticks, you could buy sticks for a dollar, balls or a quarter kind of thing. But once you had your sticks in that, you just showed up. They'd give you a jersey. And if you got lucky, you got a pair of gloves that matched, and you went and played. Uh, we didn't have any knee pads or elbow pads or helmets, none of that kind of stuff back in the good old days. Hmm. And he just went out and played. It's got a little more organized since then as far as equipment and that stuff goes. But we played, and we played every weekend and a couple times during the week. It's all organized on teams, and uh, it's been like that right all the way up since, since I was five anyways. Kevin, tell me, who are some of the players other than your brothers that you grew up idolizing? Like, there was lots, actually. There was like Range and Nermal Dillon. They were always great lacrosse players. Uh, on, on a team that was mediocre sometimes at best. Uh, Bill Monroe was another great lacrosse player. Uh, and then and, and there was players on the mainland, Wayne Goss. There was, you know, there was all kinds of good players that you'd go to watch and you might try to get a little bit off this guy and copy a little bit of that guy and, you know, put it all together and, and, and make yourself a better player. And that's kind of what I did. I never can't say that I had... One absolute favorite guy, I kind of like the bit of this guy for that, the bit of that guy for this, and, and that's kind of how you put your game together. But it's only recently, I'd say in the last 20, 25 years, that guys can do lacrosse full-time and make a living. What about with the box and your experience? No. As far as the playing part of it goes, even today, I mean, they're doing endorsements and appearances and that kind of thing. But be surprised there's more than a, a handful or two that actually make their a good living just off their playing. Uh, it looks like it's headed that way. But uh, it's still not a get-rich-quick thing if you're thinking about that for lacrosse as far as uh, remuneration goes. I asked Dave Huntley this question. There is lore out there. Wayne Gretzky played box lacrosse. Yeah, he's from the East. He's a Brantford kid. And Brantford, I guess, kind of like Victoria, if you live in Brantford, you play lacrosse and you play hockey. You'll find a lot of the Easterners, and I've seen pictures of them in lacrosse stuff, you'll find a lot of the Eastern guys, even more so than the Western guys, they played lacrosse and they played hockey. They played both sports. Some of them stuck with hockey and some of them stuck with lacrosse. That's extremely common, especially back East. One of my favorite all-time hockey players was Bobby Orr. Probably the same with his history. I don't know his lacrosse, but he sure could play hockey. A Reebok had a, a thing in the Inner Harbor here, and they had a boat. They rented a big boat. It was for a Centennial celebration. 
I went down with with Gator, Gary Gate, actually. So and he was a Reebok guy at the time. So we go down. He says, "Well, there's a Reebok boat. We can go down the Reebok boat. We can hang out." So we get down there and we finally find this boat. It's crowded as heck. And we look on the boat and I say, "Hey, I think that's Bobby Orr on there." So Gator comes out and he says, "Hey, Gator, yeah." He says, "Kind of full. We can't get on yet. There's more important guys than us that were on the boat." I says, "Is that Bobby Orr on the boat over there?" And Gator, not being a hockey guy, says. Yeah, his name's Bobby something or other, he says. <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, U.S. college coaches recruit you? No, not really. I don't know that I had that much exposure until I was like 25 years old. I remember our sea spray team, which was an exceptionally good field across team. We had Rutgers come out one time one year uh, to play us some exhibition games, and Tom Hayes come out, and he kind of started asking a few questions, but I was like 25 years old then, so a little mm-hmm. bit old for that. Please email me at fdopie at gmail.com and share your questions. I will repeat them on the show so people get the benefit of your question and my response. Invite me to speak and host the Fred Opie Show at your school, club team, or camp by emailing me at fdopie at gmail.com. Hosting a show is a great way for the oldest students who are interviewed to pass on positive peer pressure to younger students. And during the Q&A with the audience, I share a perspective I wish I had when I was younger. For the remainder of 2018, you can purchase a copy of my autobiography slash career advice, Start With Your Gift, for the reduced price of only $10 on Amazon.com. The book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook, but the $10 offer is good only on the paperback edition. We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Be a difference maker right now. Use your smartphone or computer and purchase two or more paperback copies of Start With Your Gift. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. Now back to the show. When I interviewed Tom Marichek, who was from the the same island that you're from, he said there were another set of twins other than Paul and Gary. They all played together, Tommy and, and Paul, Gary. And their name was Grant and Greg Pepper, actually. They were good. They were good players. They weren't as good as Gary and Paul's, but they were darn good players. Actually, Greg, he refereed in the NLL for the last, you know, 10 years. Grant doesn't play anymore. He's a local firefighter in town here. But, yeah, good lacrosse players, real good lacrosse players, field and box. And so these are guys that never had the opportunity to Paul and Gary Tom had them to come to the States, or they just weren't interested. Probably more so they didn't show the interest. Their dad was a firefighter, and Grant was quite happy to be a firefighter. That's a pretty good job around these parts, mm-hmm. probably good as it gets. Mm-hmm. And Greg works for the municipality, and I don't know that they pursued it that much, but I think if they really did want to pursue it, they could make a team. That does, I have no doubt about that. Why do you think more Canadians from both the East and the West are ending up at U.S. colleges playing really good lacrosse? What, what has changed? Exposure and communication. A good example, when I played, Canadian kid that played the same time and did extremely well was Mike French. He's roughly my age, a little bit older. But being in the East, he had exposure to the colleges more so than the Western guys. Western guys just started getting that exposure in the late to mid-70s. And now, uh, you know, with the communications and the computers and all, all the information out there, the Western guys are starting to get some exposure. Now we've got better field programs. We've got a terrific high school field program here at a school called Claremont. Darren Rising runs it, and he tours his team all over the East and all over the West, and uh, they have a lot of success, and they're good players. 
the tournament here in Massachusetts, UMass. And sure enough, there was a Canadian uh, field team, young guys out there playing somewhere between ninth and, and 10th grade, and they were putting a hurting on people. What role do you think Gary, Paul, and Tom's success has had in giving notoriety to the good lacrosse that's always been in Western Canada? The same thing, exposure. They were, holy cow, where do these guys come from? And, I mean, that's a natural reaction. Hey, where did these guys come from? And is there any more there? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, there is more here. I mean, uh, there ain't a whole lot more Gary and Paul Gates out there, or Doug Merchick, for that matter. But uh, there's lots of good lacrosse players here, and uh, they can all play the game. It's just a matter of, you know, getting that opportunity, that chance, and uh, taking advantage of it. Paul and Gary don't arrive at Syracuse until January of 1987. Fabulous 1987 Cornell team, undefeated going into the national championship, who played against Hopkins in the final. That game was at Rutgers. I remember being at that game. Matter of fact, that game is when Paul and Gary first came on the scene. If you were at that game, some of you might remember this, Cornell is beating Syracuse by quite a bit in the semifinals of that game. And Gary does an ISO, I believe, from behind the cage. I don't know who's covering him, but he comes around the cage and then takes the ball, one-handed stick, and shoots the ball between his legs, and it goes past uh, the two-time world team goalie, Paul Schmoller. That was the first time people saw Gary Gate and his potential, and people were going like, wow. The late, great Dave Huntley mentioned when I asked him about great players. And he said the name Billy D. Who is he and why is he so good? Oh, yeah, he, he can play the game. So Billy D plays the baddest. He's just a, an imposing figure. He has the utmost respect of his opponents, but he's a highly intense player. He's a highly physical player. He's a great player, and he knows what and where and when he can get away with things. And uh, he's extremely effective. In the NLL these days, you're not in that league and you can't play lacrosse. I don't care what your role is, uh, you still have to have the fundamentals and, and sound game of lacrosse to, to be uh, a member of that league. You played on an incredible four U national teams. I played on one, and the idea of doing that tryout four times makes me tired just thinking about it. What's your involvement in the Canadian national program at this stage in your life? I'm just a good spectator at this point. <laughs> uh, you know, I had my, my four years, and I think it spanned like 12 years by the time you go every fourth year. But uh, it was a good experience, a great bunch of guys. I, I mean, the good part of that is the guy you meet. Like, I met all kinds of great guys on the U.S. team, made some good friends there. Um, you know, guys like Darkey and Ingle Keys from New York and Greeby and Brooks Sweet, Petramala, can go on forever. You just meet so many good guys when you're when you're playing. And that, that's probably what I remember the best about it. It was just, just fun. The camps and all that, well, they're hard work. That's what they're supposed to be. But, uh, you know, that's, I guess that's a rainbow at the end of it when you get to go out and play. Midfield, the best you've ever seen. Who are your top three midfielders all time? Holy cow, I'd have to think about that. With Gary and Paul, I guess. Casey Powell. Three Syracuse guys. Did I coach you on that at all? A Syracuse alum. I never thought about that part of it. <laughs> Very interesting. Paul, Gary, and Casey Powell has also been on the show. What is your definition of a great player? A great player is a player who goes out every game and gives his best effort and is effective in what he does. I think there's, there's a fair number of great players 
I don't know that there's a whole lot of superstars. I have two different definitions for a superstar and a great player. There's lots of great players who will have big games, good games, score three or four goals or whatever. But a superstar is more than a great player. I think a superstar is a guy that does all those things a great player does, but he also makes his teammates better. And I don't know how many of those guys there is out there. Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan, those guys are superstars. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend. Share the show on Facebook and Twitter or send them to our website at fredopi.com. If you could change one thing in your past, what would it be? I run at college. Uh, it would have been interesting to see how that went. Not having done that and seeing how it's gone for some people, that would probably be something I would uh, try to venture into a little bit more. That or, oh, play hockey. Like I played other sports, too. I could play hockey, play baseball. I kind of like lacrosse the best, so that's where I went. But there was other sports that had potential. Well, well speaking of other sports, what's your relationship, if any, with uh, Steve Nash, who was from the same island? Just friends. We played golf a time or two, and uh, you know, I used to go. I guess he used to go to all lacrosse games when I was a, a senior in Victoria, Shamrock. And uh, he's a little bit younger, uh, but yeah, he used to go to the games, and he liked what he saw. So uh, we kind of met, played golf, and actually played with him. And Tommy played the time. One time we played there when we were playing golf for about the seventeenth hole. And he says to me, he says, "You know, he says I played four years of college and three years of pro." He said, you're one of the best trash talkers I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) If you could have dinner with three people, Kevin, dead or alive, what three would you have, and where would you take them to eat? Probably. Probably Muhammad Ali, for one. And Tiger Woods. And third, but I don't know. The guy that always fascinates me, I don't know how he keeps getting away with it, but how he thinks there's got to be something else is Vince McMahon. It's kind of an interesting guy to me. But uh, there's probably three guys. Muhammad Ali, for sure. And where are you going to take but, him to uh, eat? Oh, I don't know. Some place. You've got to have steak, I guess. So a nice steak place. Kevin, what's the kindest thing anybody's ever done for you? Well, I just turned 16, I guess, summertime, playing lacrosse. And the guy, actually his name was Skip Chapman. He was a goalie for the Shamrocks. And he ran the uh, Pepsi-Cola in Victoria here. And he said, you want to go to work? It was my first job. That was a swamper. It was hard work, actually, looking back. I got tricked there a little bit. But I thought that was pretty good. I wasn't even looking. He said, hey, come and go to work. My first job was pretty good. He just come out of the blue and said, hey, get down here and got a job for you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, thanks, friends. It's been a pleasure. Alexander the Great, Kevin Alexander, a Hall of Famer from Victoria, British Columbia. Our guest today is Gordon Corsetti whose story appeared in the September-slash-October edition of U.S. Lacrosse magazine. Like the story, this interview contains graphic content and is intended for mature audiences. The article was entitled, Lacrosse Saved My Life, A Story of Friendship and Survival. Gordon, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, Fred. Tell me the backstory. How did lacrosse save your life? In the past, it was a thing that I could do before I realized I had any type of mental illness or, or formal diagnosis, if you will. And it was, a, it was an outlet for me in terms of uh, my mental health. 
now it has uh, developed into something uh, in some ways that that's work in my work at U.S. Lacrosse, but it's also um, a way for me to be able to give back to the game and continue what what I term my permanent recovery uh, from depression and anxiety. Uh, it's the one area of my life um, where I am totally focused on doing this one thing as well as I can in terms of lacrosse officiating, and it allows me to you know focus deeply on something for an hour and a half, two hours, uh, and then use that experience and try to apply that to more aspects of my daily life. I don't know if people know this other than if they if I read my book, a memoir slash career advice called Start With Your Gift. And in that book, I talked about, um, particularly as a high school student, struggling with you know suicidal thoughts. Growing up African-American in U.S. society is not the easiest thing. There were times where I felt less than, uh, marginalized, not worth living. Why should I even deal with all this pain and suffering? And and it happened during a time where you're going through adolescence, uh, and there's all kinds of insecurities you feel, real or made up. So that's that's where I was, and and certainly did some um, mental health training to work my way through it, but never realized how depressed I was at that age. Do you resonate at all with what I'm saying? I do, uh, with the exception of of growing up as an (laughs) African-American. Of course, yeah. (laughs) But I do remember around 15, 16, these, these, I termed them as whispers, but basically thoughts that I didn't really feel were uh, my own. And it was all about uh, worthlessness lack of being able to measure up and that morphed and grew over time uh, into uh, you're not worth living you should kill yourself right that was the that eventually art to that uh, final idea the thing that I ran into looking back on the thing I'm, I'm trying to work uh, to spreading the message about mental illness especially to the, to the younger community and then their parents is that I assumed at that age, uh, that this was a normal consequence of puberty and growth into adulthood. So my assumption then led me to keep this a secret uh, as much as I could from all the other people, my parents, uh, my friends, teachers, whoever I was with, coaches, players, whatnot, teammates. It was, they were all dealing with the exact same horrifying, terrifying thoughts that I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. They were just clearly doing it so much better than I was. And now I add in the, the additional bit of shame and guilt and additional uh, feelings of worthlessness because clearly what I'm doing, just barely getting out of bed and getting to school and doing the minimum to get through my day uh, is not enough. And everybody else seems to be able to do that as well. Heard you say how it was a secret. And I don't know where I heard this saying. There's many sayings that I hear from people that I take as my own, but I also let people clearly know I didn't, I didn't create them, which is the one secrets lead to sickness. I'm not asking you to believe my theology, but I believe there is an enemy of our soul is interested in taking out what I would call the image of God, which is us any way possible. Thoughts in your mind are those ways that they can happen. If that demonic force can get you to think, to isolate yourself and make you think you're the only one going through this, then it seems even easier to say, why am I worth living? Instead of when you when you come out like you did. And I think people were so responsive to your article because they said, 
similar term to what we see right now going on with uh, violence against women is me too. I relate to you, Gordon. I understand what you're going through. I'd, I'd agree completely with that. It's and I, and I try to strip away the mystique maybe of mental illness and I, I think it's it's grateful certainly you know, this conversation uh, shows that as, as a society as a culture we've now gotten to a point where we are able to focus on on mental illness to the same degree that we have been able to focus on physical illness for the last several <laughs> you know hundreds of years refining our knowledge of the body try to match uh, what we know about the mind and the ways that the mind can go uh, awry but Keeping things uh, silent, I mean, it certainly never helped me. What was the first step in the road towards healing for you? A lot of falling down. I characterize it kind of stumbling in the dark, uh, myself individually and then my, my family. Uh, we didn't know what we didn't know, um, and I certainly didn't, and a lot of it was gathering information. Probably the clearest road to healing I had was after my uh, first hospitalization. That was probably in 2011, after my, my first uh, actual suicide attempt where I got introduced to cognitive behavioral therapy, basics of uh, creating daily self-care routines, being able to uh, make tiny changes to my daily environment or my behaviors to have a better (laughs) day and and certainly a better outlook. It's been a lot of work. Uh, It's going to continue to be a lot of work. I I call it permanent recovery for a reason. It takes daily work to, to be well. I fought with that for a long time. I thought I should just be well. I've got to do some different things to be able to uh, live the life I want to be able to live. Dyslexia, which recently has gotten more attention. I think about people like Damon Johns from Shark Tank and Sir Richard Branson, a famous entrepreneur. These are people with dyslexia, and we're learning more and more about people who have had tremendous success in life despite dyslexia. I wondered if it is similar with uh, mental health and struggles with depression. Do we know about more people? And more often than not, we hear about the demise of people Mm. with mental health. But what about those who are thriving? Charles Haley, all-pro football player, played with the San Francisco 49ers and then also played with the Dallas Cowboys, member of the Hall of Fame, another Hall of Famer, Brian Dawkins. I've seen both of them talk about this, and I thought it was really inspirational for these guys to talk about the struggles that they had. Any other folks that you can think about, as it were, come out and been an inspiration for you? Two or three that jump right to mind. Meriwether Lewis, of Lewis and Clark fame. You've embarked on a brand new frontier and literally mapped it out, and you think it's, it's, you're, you're still not worthwhile, uh, or that you haven't given a worthwhile gift to humanity. And the other one that, that springs to mind is certainly Winston Churchill. Writings about battling what he terms the black dog. Again, another way to externalize the depression. They had moments where they, they couldn't function, and, mm. and they acknowledged that. Rituals. I think it's called Rituals. And it's a book mm. in which this author has gone throughout history and looked at some of the greatest creators, many of them writers, composers, painters. And, and he looks at the rituals in their, create, in their creative process. The author describes that clearly suffered from, from mental health, and particularly depression. There seems to be, I have no idea what it is, not my area of research, but there seems to be something in the creative, and the genius, as it were. So there's this genius, but then there's this thing almost as though it keeps them down to earth, makes them normal, as it were, 
and that's the the chink in the armor, which is a depression. It, it also makes me think of Stan Lee, who recently passed, the guy yeah. who just made such a, a inroad in Marvel comic. And the thing about Stan Lee that was different from other people who worked with cartoons and superheroes was that his superheroes were people we could relate to because there was something flawed about them. Depression deals with a flaw. So there's genius, then there's flaw. There's superpower, then there's flaw. One that I remember, Jackson Pollock, the painter. You know, the ideal that you're less than, that if you're dealing with depression, history does not bear that out. There are so many people who have made uh, great contributions who have dealt with this, and some better than others. As I like to say to, to students who come to me, and I, and I get this as a college professor, where students who are suffering from depression so much, as you said, they couldn't even get out of bed. They come to me and they have to explain why they haven't been in class, and they're surprised to find that their professor also has struggled with, with mental health, that he has ADHD, that he takes medication, and all those different things, and they're like, you? And I'm like, yeah, welcome <laughs> to being normal. That's my message to them. Welcome to being normal. We have people out there who are struggling. And if you're authentic, like you were in your article, what healing you can bring to so many other people other than trying to hide that thing that you feel less than, and then you really can't minister to people unless you're authentic. Kids feel trapped in themselves, and it's a core principle of the disease. Edwin Schneidman is the father of modern suicidology. Uh, describes it as emotional tunnel vision, are incapable of perceiving the love and compassion and affection of those around you, and then equally unable to express them. And that just gets worse and worse and worse and more and more. And then that leads you to thinking of, of only and final solutions to your problem. I'm trying to do is show that, you know, hey, I've <laughs> a couple of times, uh, you know, stood on the stool or, or had the gun in my hand and stuff like, you know what, this, this is awful. But... You know, there, there, there is so much more uh, on the other side of this, but just to step back and gain a wider perspective and be able to open up those blinders. But the only way that I know how to do that right now is to, is to speak to my experiences and then show people and explain to folks ways in which I, I keep my gaze wider. What are some of the things that, you know, these are the core. If I do this, I, I'm more likely to be healthy and have a great day, a great week, a great month than if I don't. For me, it was really just being able to go to sleep on time. I have a good night's sleep. I change my environment to, to match that. I read to a, a very red light that tricks the brain uh, to think that you're sitting by a campfire. So it's clearly nighttime, so it's time to ramp up the melatonin, uh, and you fall asleep faster. And if I need to, as far as behavior things, I'll listen to a guided meditation. I actually did that last night, uh, uh, either a, a body relaxation guided meditation awesome stuff that's up on YouTube, Jason Stevenson, Michael Seeley are my favorites, usually zonks me right out. And so now I wake up and I'm rested and, and I have more uh, energy to be able to combat the things that my brain might throw at me that day. Uh, and then the other kind of big things for me is take as much time to do small things as possible. So I will take my time to iron my pants. I will take my time in brushing my teeth. Take an extra long amount of time to brew my coffee exactly the way I want it, read a chapter in a book, uh, and basically do, I've, I've discovered it's easier for me to get uh, myself moving in the morning if I just have so many small wins, and I'm not shooting to get them all done, I'm just aiming for a 500 batting average. So I make my bed, but my bed has two sheets and a pillow. 
made it very easy for me to be able to work that into my day. Now it's something that I rarely think about. The, the overarching kind of support structures for me still are exercise, medication, meditation, both silent and guided. I uh, kind of jump between all those, uh, and breath work especially. A lot of anxiety comes from the, the fear of the unknown and, and potential chaos. And breath work for me has been uh, a tremendously simple way, even on the lacrosse field, of resetting my, my, perspective, my perspective on things and also be able to calm myself down at the same time. It's, it's, it's simple, it's <laughs> but it, it is extraordinarily effective. This is, this is what I heard uh, as you talked about self-care and what works for you. There was a theme of getting a win you know, whether it's making your bed, whether it's different things that you want to do. Getting every one of those small wins releases endorphins that are good for your brain and create a good environment in your head for what you got to do. Absolutely correct. It's the exact same dopamine release that we get from seeing that little Facebook uh, notification pop up uh, or the tweet notification and the phone beeps. Uh, pulling the <laughs> lever on a slot machine, exact same dopamine hit. I am in some form or fashion uh, deficient in my dopamine production or serotonin production or uptake of those. Uh, so I, I, again, try to stack the deck and, and add more dopamine into my system as much as I can in a healthy way of doing that. And yeah, the to-do list is, uh, is, a, is a tremendous uh, planning tool to, to keep me on track. And I would imagine... That's what happens when you are involved in lacrosse. You're doing something that you love, and your body's producing dopamines. Oh, yeah. Everybody has experiences at some point in time of doing something, and you're just doing it. And, and then you realize later that, oh, I was doing this thing, and, and you weren't even you. You were, you were within this thing. You were a part of it. It was a part of you uh, to that point of, of what you said about the creative process, of very much of uh, you're a little bit more than yourself at that point in time. And that's what officiating has been able to to give to me on a, on a regular basis, uh, which is why when I've tracked my mood over a, a year and a half, two year period, uh, why I, I have my highest uh, baseline readings of, of happiness and joy um, and, and overall contentment during the lacrosse season, because I'm doing games three or four days a week. Uh, and then I have a dip in May uh, when the season's over. That is predictable, so I can, I can uh, address that. Uh, and then I tend to have a, a more significant dip in October, November, uh, just because the seasons are changing and I'm far away from, <laughs> I haven't wrecked any lacrosse really in, in, in much anything or uh, haven't had that consistent exercise. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's F-D-O-P-I-E at gmail.com.